responding to a White House call for greater digital record keeping by federal agencies, the Defense Department issued a new digital strategy of its own earlier this week. For an assessment, Federal News Network's Alex Lohr spoke to former National Archives and Records Administration attorney and now a professor of information studies at the University of Maryland, Jason Barron. I think it's a remarkable document on the part of the Department of Defense. It reflects a sophisticated understanding of records management in 2023 and going forward because it the document recognizes that there are there have been flaws in records management policies in the past it is framing the issues for the future for a multi-year effort to modernize records management throughout a very very large department in the federal government so it's a a very big task that's at hand and I applaud DOD for doing that. What are some of the flaws that you see as being corrected in this document? The document lays out a number of places that really are material weaknesses in records management, and not just at DOD, but throughout the government. One of the the first areas that it tackles is record scheduling. There are too many record schedules at agencies, in many agencies, not just DOD, And the record schedules are very granular. They have hundreds of record series with different disposition periods for how long records should be retained. And in many cases, even within components of a department or an agency, there are inconsistencies among record schedules. So there are variations and inconsistencies. And it's pointed out in this document how three different components of DOD have scheduled the same type of record for a retention period of different years, whether it's three or four or seven or whatever, the differences need to be simplified. So the very first thing that the document does extremely well is lays out a philosophy and lays out a plan for record schedule simplification. And that leads to another important part of the document, which is its recognition of auto classification. You can't automate processes of records management if you have a very complex record schedule, very granular, hundreds of record series in different dispositions and inconsistencies and ambiguities. And so the the document promises that as going forward, records management at DOD will, there'll be a great attempt to automate, to auto-classify records, to make sure that there's a way to auto-dispose to execute disposition of records at the end of their life cycle. And that is a, a very good thing. The document does recognize that for the last decade, there have been promises made in the vendor community that auto-classification is easy. And it's not easy. It needs to be customized for each department and agency. And so that is a large job. And I applaud the document in that respect as well. There are others, other components that I'm happy to speak to. It sounded like what they were trying to do is create a master document for that. Yes, basically so. I don't know whether they'll get to one schedule out of hundreds that exist now, but ideally or aspirationally, that's the goal. And there's something else going on beyond just record schedules. It's the document uh, recognizes the importance of records management at the beginning of a procurement cycle. We all know that DOD has 
a large slice of the federal budget. And part of that slice of the pie for DOD is in IT systems that have the latest and greatest information technology that is brought to bear across the world in the deployment of DOD forces and personnel. And from a records management perspective, it's really important to get those experts who understand the life cycle of records at the table, at the beginning of a new procurement where you're migrating to a different platform, you're using different software, you're buying hardware, and you're using the cloud, all for the purposes of making sure that records can be communicated to the field and efficiently and managed appropriately. And so the idea here in the document is to recognize the importance of records managers being on the front, at the table, at the beginning. And I would argue, as a matter of information governance, it is important not just to get records managers, but to get lawyers and other experts who have equities in records at the table as well, whether it's privacy or cybersecurity or you name it. There's a variety of C-suite people, senior officials, who need to be delegating people to be at the beginning of any procurement cycle. Don't just leave it to the IT crowd, but to incorporate important policies that exist elsewhere in organizations. Which sort of brings up an interesting point. If you are saying, okay, we're going to use machine learning and we're going to use AI to automate a lot of this, is, does that need to be checked? Is, it, is there a danger of that taking over some decision-making that does need to be made by experts? We all are very aware these days of generative AI and chat GPT and other forms of machine learning. And the National Archives has been an advocate of using AI tools both to um, categorize and make access possible for on its websites to billions of records. And then there's AI tools that are important in the management of records from any agency. I don't believe that the current concerns about the ethics or the mysteries of what is in the black box are necessarily pertinent to the kind of regular routine use of AI for better records management purposes. Auto classification is not going to raise deep issues. There may be issues at the margins about whether the algorithm is getting it right in the same way that people might. But there have been many studies in the field that I'm in as a lawyer in the e-discovery space that show that the machine learning methods that we have come to know in the last decade do a very good job of finding documents and separating out documents into different categories. And that's what this document is. This is what DOD is talking about, sort of standard, well-known techniques to bring to bear, to automate records management in 2023. This is a very valuable framework going forward to automate what is a largely still manual process in government in many ways. Jason Barron, former director of litigation at NARA and now an information studies professor at the University of Maryland, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, um, being born in rural southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.